How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary and to focus on the teaching of the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We continue to pray for our president. We pray for our both civilian leaders and political leadership. We pray for those who are uh, serving in the armed forces who are part of this ministry. Pray that you would guide and direct each of them, especially the leaders of this nation, as they have to deal with strategy and as they deal with all of the various uh, pieces of information that come in. We pray that you would bring the right information to their attention, continue to make this country safe, continue to uh, preserve us, that we may continue to send forth missionaries, support missionaries, and that we may continue to support Israel. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we'd be challenged by the things that we study, that we would gain a greater appreciation for its accuracy, its uh, infallibility, its truthfulness, and its sufficiency. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and I want to begin this evening, before we get into the table of nations, by looking one more time at what takes place in the last section of Genesis 9, with the episode of Noah and his drunkenness and the Noahic blessing and cursing on his three sons, known also as the Oracle. The Oracle of Noah. Now, in this episode, we have a situation where Noah plants a vineyard in verse 20. He drinks the wine and he gets drunk. Now, there have been many people who have taught, and some of you have been taught over the years, that what happened here was something that surprised Noah. And I pointed out the last time that this that's an attempt to try to justify a more positive view of Noah. And every time we look at characters in the... Old Testament that are listed in the New Testament, we need to realize the Old Testament gives both good and bad. And throughout the book of Genesis, you see these characters start off good and end up revealing certain corruption in their character. And this is not to just to denigrate them, but the writer is making the point that this is the result of sin and that sin corrupts everyone. So Noah is presented here as getting involved in a sin of drunkenness. But the focus isn't on Noah. The focus is on, really, it's on Canaan. This is emphasized 
by the fact that twice the writer says, Ham, the father of Canaan. It's not even on Ham per se, but this uh, dual reference to Ham, the father of Canaan, and then the curse on Canaan in verse 25 drives our attention, our focus, onto what is happening in relationship to this curse on Canaan. The question is, what happens? He drank of the wine, verse 21. Noah drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, this is what the problem is. He becomes uncovered in his tent. And people say, well, this had some kind of sexual overtones because in the next verse, we have the phrase that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And I just want to nail this one more time before we we move on to other things. Genesis 9, 21 and 22 are the key verses that focus on this sin. And I want to just pay attention to a couple of points that I may not have brought out as strongly the last time. First of all, this phrase that Noah uncovered himself indicates what Noah's basic, what, what the key issue is in this whole thing is he uncovered himself. And the, the, the um, allegation is it's some kind of uh, sexual sin, but that, that Ham uh, commits toward Noah because of the fact that in verse 24, Noah awakes from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. But the point is that the verb used in verse 21, used in verse 21, is the hispael stem of the verb gala. I didn't get that. Of the verb gala, which means to uncover or to lay bare. And the hispael stem is a reflexive stem. So this is accurately translated, he uncovered himself. This is something Noah does to himself. He just goes into the tent, he's drunk, and he, he takes off all of his clothes, falls down in bed, right in the middle of the tent. Then in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, this phrase, saw the nakedness, is what I have up on the screen. This first phrase at the, the top sentence expresses Ham's action. It is the phrase in the Hebrew, ra'ah erva. Ra'ah erva. The verb is ra'ah to see, and it's in the perfect tense, so it indicates past action, he saw. And nakedness is the word arve, arva, actually, in this sentence. In Leviticus 18, chapter 18, and Leviticus chapter 20, you have numerous statements describing the sexual sins, the sexual perversion of the Canaanites. And in all those passages, you have a different phrase. That phrase is gala erva. Gala erva. Notice it's the erva is the same in both phrases. That's the word for nakedness. But in Genesis, you have the phrase ra'ah, to look upon or to see. In Leviticus 18, the repeated phrase is gala. Now, there's one verse, I believe it's in verse 18, 19, Leviticus 18:19, where they are used in parallelism, and so some people say, well, that shows that that seeing the nakedness is the same as uncovering the nakedness. No, it's not. It's just used as a parallelism. The key controlling thought in chapter 18 and 20 of Leviticus is simply is different. 
It is a different phrase, and that has to do with sexual perversion. So it's an extremely weak argument to say that you, you, uh, that to see the nakedness of his father implies some sort of sexual sin. In the ancient world, we have to remember that nakedness itself represented a loss of human dignity, and to look upon someone uh, in such a state of vulnerability was a sign of a lack of respect, a lack of personal dignity, and it was had that person was in a position where they lacked protection and were vulnerable. So it is, uh, it it was considered a, an extreme cultural. Uh, sin to do that, lack of respect for someone who is in authority. The solution to the problem, if the problem is a sexual sin, then the solution really doesn't fit. Because the solution of verse 23 is, But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness. So you have this covering and uncovering. And you just have to stick with Scripture. It's, I think a lot of people have a tendency to want to jump to conclusions because it, it just seems to make things a little more exciting, what's going on in the passage. But what's happening in the passage is nothing more than uh, this, this act. Now, what's going on mentally is a different thing, and I don't think it's an attitude of mental lust. I think it's an attitude of disrespect, it shows a lack, uh, it shows a moral flaw on Ham's part. And so what this represents is the first stage in the process of abandoning the moral code that has been stated in the Noahic covenant, that it's already breaking down. They're not off the ark long. We don't know how long the period was, but uh, it's that the writer doesn't make a temporal thing. I mean, the first thing he tells us about is that the moral, ethical environment of the new world, the post-Diluvian world, is already breaking down. And Ham's lack of respect for his father represents the first stage in this abandonment. And what happens is Noah, in his perceptiveness of what's going on with his sons, recognizes that, that Ham's problem is already evident in the behavior of his son Canaan, and he prophesies that this, this will lead to a complete breakdown of sexual morality among the descendants of Canaan. So he pronounces a curse upon Canaan that because of his lack of self-discipline in this area of sexual sin, that it will lead to the servitude of those people. And eventually the Canaanites, who are also related to the Phoenicians, and the Carthaginians are all destroyed by Japhethites. They are all the Can are, are by others. The Canaanites are wiped out by the Jews. The Phoenicians eventually disappear from history, and the Carthaginians are also wiped out by uh, by uh, by Rome in about the second century uh, A.D. I mean B.C. So about the second century B.C. So this is ultimately fulfilled that Canaan become, goes into servitude to his brethren, to Japhethites and to uh, Shemites. The blessing is on Shem, and the blessing is related to their spiritual environment. And this, of course, works itself out in the descendants of Shem, which will be given in both chapter 10 and chapter 11, and culminates in Abram. 
And it is through Abram that God will call out a new people and through whom the Messiah will come. So the spiritual blessing is from Shem, who is positive to doctrine, positive to the Lord, and we're specifically stated again that Canaan will be his servant. And then in verse 27, the positive blessing, may God enlarge Japheth. And the Hebrew word for enlarge, it's a play on words here, it's, The Holy Spirit seems to be fond of puns in the Old Testament. The Hebrew verb is yafat, which is etymologically related to the word japheth, and it means to expand. And throughout history, you've seen this expansion and exploration of Japhetic tribes. They expanded north toward Russia, and as we'll see, northwest into Europe, but eventually the New World was was settled and expanded by descendants of, of Japheth, and then they have gone out under the British, under the Americans, under many of the Europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries. They established colonies and basically controlled uh, most of the commerce on the face of the earth. So this is the, uh, the idea of may God enlarge Japheth, and then the idea that he may dwell in the tents of Shem is the fact that most of Japheth's descendants are going to come under the umbrella, as it were, the tent of Christianity and Judaism, that most of Western civilization is going to be influenced by Judeo-Christian values. And this is the idea expressed in the phrase, may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Then we have the postlude. So that ends chapter 9. But in that curse, you have the recognition that the human race and the history of the human race is going to follow upon the three different paths related to their progenitors, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, as I pointed out, every time we run into the naming or the names of the sons of Noah, they are listed in this order, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is what we discover in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, but that's a bad translation, as I've pointed out. It is not the phrase, um, this is the genealogy of it. Actually, this is the record of it. It's a Toledot section. But before we get into this, what we're going to see is this introduces chapter 10, extending down through chapter 11, verse 9, which is the fourth Toledot section, and this is the section that gives us the, the summary of what happens to the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So let's hit a little summary here. First point, the oracle of, the oracle of Noah is a capsule of ancient history. It gives us a three-prong approach to understanding human history in terms of these three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Second thing we should note is that the oracle emphasizes certain characteristics of the three branches of the human race in relation to cursing and blessing. Cursing and blessing has been the major theme in Genesis. God placed man on the earth. He blessed the earth. Man sinned, but that brought on cursing. Nevertheless, God in his grace continues to find ways to bless man. There is a blessing on Noah and his descendants uh, that goes along with the Noahic covenant. But then again, Noah and his sons 
uh, demonstrate their sin nature, their their corruption, and you see the degeneration of post-Diluvian civilization. And it's going to follow along certain broad paths. And these are very broad statements. They're not specific and they're not necessarily true in each and every case. But there are certain broad characteristics or tendencies in these different uh, different groups. Third, we see that Shem has positive volition toward God. He receives a spiritual blessing, or his blessing is in the spiritual dimension, and this is fulfilled ultimately in the person of Christ. And fourth, that the descendants of Japheth share in that blessing and their promised geographical expansion. Now that brings us to the Table of Nations, chapter 10. This is called technically the Table of Nations and describes all of the nations and their sources, where they came from in terms of the descendants of Noah after the flood. So we need to go over a few points just to understand the Table of Nations. First of all, point number one, the table is foundational to understanding Israel's past and future. We have to understand the framework of this table has to do with the foundation of Israel between the events of chapter 9 and the events of chapter 12. We have these two genealogically heavy chapters. What is their purpose? Their purpose is to show the need for God calling out Abraham as a as the father of a distinct people. He calls out Abraham as the father of a distinct people. And so the table of nations is a very brief rundown to show why that has to happen. That there is continued corruption and the Gentiles as a whole fail to obey God, fail to follow and apply the uh, Noahic covenant. And therefore God is going to quit working through the, the, the human race as a whole and he is going to work primarily through the descendants of Abraham. And the purpose for the table is to show various blood ties, various treaty relationships and alliances, and other connections between the people who existed at the time that Moses is writing this. When Moses writes the Pentateuch, all of these peoples have been developed and Israel is getting ready to go into the land. So the, the basic purpose for writing the Table of Nations is to give Israel an understanding of how they fit into the rest of humanity. This not only affects their past historical situation, but all, will also affect their future condition and ultimately their final state. Because it is terminology from this table of nations that is used again and again and again throughout the scriptures to define certain people groups. Second thing we realize from a study of the table of nations is that the Mideast conflict is primarily theological and has its roots in these primogenital nature, nations. These are this is the beginning. We find we often want to and and truthfully so we often want to pin the, the foundation of the Arab-Israeli conflict on uh, Isaac and Ishmael. It also goes back to, their, uh, to Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. 
but there are numerous Arab tribes that were descendants of cousins of Abram, and it has to do with the goes back to the table of nations itself, where we see that these various nations rejected God. What creates the division? What creates the hostility, the warfare, the conflict in human history? It is the rejection of God. Everything ultimately has to be traced to a theological root. Everything has to be traced back to an understanding of who God is, what God is doing in history, man as a fallen creature, and the consequences of that. So we see that all of this is going to ultimately uh, go back to a breakdown in the first three divine institutions. Divine institution number one being human responsibility. Now we see that at the Tower of Babel. They refused to take responsibility for their actions in terms of expanding and they gather together and build a tower in rebellion against God. There is a further breakdown of personal responsibility several times in the life of Abraham. And this leads, of course, to the uh, breakdown in the marriage in divine institution number two when Abraham takes Sarah's advice to take Hagar as his wife and to have try to raise up the, the promised child through Hagar. This, in turn, breaks down the third divine institution of the family. So again and again, what we will see traced through the, the table of nations and through Abraham and the rest of the Genesis is when the first three uh, divine institutions break down, then it creates conflict, warfare, and these seemingly innocent acts that take place early on, or they don't seem that momentous, have consequences that reverberate for centuries. Noah is Noah recognizes that this action that takes place in the tent really represents uh, certain major character traits that are going to reverberate all the way down through history. In the same way that this little seemingly innocuous act of uh, Esau selling his birthright for a mess of pottage continues to reverberate on the headlines of the newspaper every day as we see about the problems and we read about the problems in Israel. So again and again and again in Genesis, the emphasis on, is on the fact that what may appear to be uh, events that aren't that momentous, that they just rip the fabric of, of, of society in the ancient world. Nevertheless, our third point, God is still in control of history. And as we go through the table of nations, we see that God controls the affairs of nations. Even though all events and decisions in human history are freely made by man, in the final analysis, every event in human history is under God's sovereign will, and he is working through human history to accomplish his purposes in the angelic conflict. So God is still in control of history. Fourth, we learn that the sins of the parents may afflict future generations, but only insofar as those future generations continue to perpetuate those sins. This is found in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, and this is called the fourth generation curse. And this doesn't mean somebody can curse you. And it goes down to fourth generation. That's what you get when you get a bunch of Christians who start paying attention to the rules from those who practice the, and dabble in the occult and in demonism. 
Exodus 34, 7 reads that God will love those who, and he will keep his loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now that doesn't mean that God is going to punish down to the fourth generation those who commit certain sins. You're not going to be punished for the sins of your great-great-grandfather. But if you commit the same sins as your great-great-grandfather, then you will. And what this, what the Table of Nations points out is there is a genetic tendency to perpetuate the sins of the parents and the grandparents and the great-grandparents unless there is a turning to God, unless there's positive volition, unless there is a change based on Bible doctrine. That is the only way to reverse this this curse. Now, before we go any further, I want to just go over some basic observations on the passage. Basic observations on the table of nations. First of all, Genesis 10.1 down to 11.26, almost the end of the next chapter, comprise the fourth and fifth Toledot sections. We've studied these in the past that Genesis has ten Toledot sections. The word Toledot in the Hebrew means records of and really they should be translated, this is what happened to these, this is what happened to the descendants of. This is what happened to the generations of. And it occurs at the beginning of each separate section. My belief is that, that Moses had numerous scrolls available to him, and these scrolls were written uh, by these family groups. And that was the heading, these are the descendants of Adam. That was the title. And then you have... Uh, everything from Adam to Noah. These are the descendants. This is what happened to the descendants of Noah. And then you have another scroll detailing all the information from Noah down to his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And there was a lot of information available to Moses that he did not, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he did not include in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And... This leaves a lot of gaps for us and gives us a lot of curiosity. And it gives us just a bare-bones skeleton of what was going on in the pre-Abrahamic world. Now, the structure of of Genesis, remember, the first chapter, chapter 1-1 down to 2-3, describes the creation of the heavens and the earth. Then 2-4 to 4-16 gives us the generations. This is what happened to the heavens and the earth that God created. And that covers the fall and the cur- curse. Then, in beginning in 5.1 down through 6.8, we have the generations of Adam. This is what happened to Adam's descendants. And we have the genealogy of chapter 5 uh, ending up with Noah and Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then in 6.9 to 9.29, we have the Toledot of Noah. This is what happened to Noah. And that describes the flood and the Noahic covenant and Noah's drunkenness and the oracle of Noah at the end of chapter 9. Then the fourth Toledot extends from 10.1 to 11.9. This is the Toledot of Noah's sons. This is what happened to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in 11.10 to 26, 
It comes back and tells us this is the Toledot of Shem. Now, did you notice something? The fourth one says this is the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the fifth one comes back, these are the generations of Shem. What's the writer telling you? What's important here is the Shemites. This is where the focus is going to go. So it is foreshadowed by a repetition of Shem's uh, descendants. And that culminates in Terah, who is the father of Abraham. So we don't have a section that says these, this is what happened to Abraham and his descendants. It's This is the generation of Terah. Terah was Abram's father. So Genesis 10.1 to 11.26 comprise the fourth and fifth Toledot. Second point is that, observation here rather, is that the isolation of Shem as a distinct Toledot after that of Shem, Ham, and Japheth draws our attention to the unique role that Shem will play in human history. That is the descendants of Shem. We speak of these in groups in terms of their uh, forefather. Shem was the one who was promised a blessing in Genesis 9.26. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. So Shem is the one who is positive to Yahweh. Then the third observation is that this Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which covers chapter 10 down through 11.9, this is called the Table of Nations and classifies rather this focuses on two things, what happens in general to the descendants of the three sons and the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And in this section, which is called the Table of Nations, the Scriptures classify people according to physically or genetically related clans. Uh, They are divided up anthropologically, linguistically, politically, and geographically. It will, this, this, Genealogy not only mentions the names of people, but also mentions tribal groups, countries, and cities. So you have an individual who is the father of a city. Well, that means he was the father of a son who founded a particular city or founded a particular uh, country. Now, the other thing that's interesting is the order reverses. Up to this point, we've read... The names of Noah's sons is Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But when the table of nations begins, we don't begin with the descendants of Shem. We begin with the descendants of Japheth. Again, this is the writer drawing our attention to the fact that he's reversed the order and he's going to end with Shem. That's the direction he's going in. So this draws attention to Shem as the focal point of the table of nations. Fifth point of observation is that the number of descendants. Japheth's descendants, number 14. Ham's descendants, number 30. And Shem, 26. So if you add 14 and 30 and 26, you come up with 70. There were 70, there were 70 that went into Israel with Jacob, with Joseph, when Jacob, with Jacob when he returned, when he moved to Egypt. Under when Joseph was the uh, vice ruler of Egypt. So this all ties Genesis together. You know, this isn't just stuff that is loose, loosey-goosey. This just shows how there are internal threads here 
that give us that, that all tie together. There's an internal consistency that give us great confidence that this is exactly what he claims to be the Word of God. This is written by one author. There's an internal cohesion, and it is not just something cobbled together by different religious people over the centuries, which is what the liberals charge. The 70 nations are said to correspond to the number of families of Israel, for God arranged their boundaries according to the number of the Israelites. Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, that is, the division at, at the Tower of Babel, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, in some people say that's the number, what may have in their Bible, the number of the angels or the sons of God, the sons of, of, uh, of Yahweh, not Beneha Elohim, but the sons of Yahweh. That is a reading found in the Greek translation of the Septuagint, but it's not found in the vast majority of the Hebrew manuscripts. So it should properly read according to the number of the sons of Israel. So the fifth point is simply emphasizing the fact that there is an interesting correspondence now between the number of individuals given in the table and the number of, of Israelites going into Egypt. The table mentions both individuals and families. Japheth, Ham, Shem, Nimrod, Peleg, these are all individuals. Then you have families or people groups such as the Dodanim. Don't try to write all this down. Uh, I'm just putting this up here for an example. The Dodanim, Ketim, that I am ending. Notice that. That is a Hebrew plural ending. And that was given to a people group. The Dodanim, the Ketim, the Mitzraim, the Ludim, the Ananim, the Lechavim, the Naphtuhim, Patrasim, Kaslahim, Kaphtarim. Those are all people groups. Then you have another set of people mentioned here. And their names end with ites, like the Jebusites. This, this comes over from a Gentile language. The Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. These are all people groups. So the only point I'm making here is the table emphasizes not only individuals, but also clan groups or tribal groups. Seventh point of observation, the table of nations also introduces important place names, important geographical places, cities, uh, nations, such as Babylon. Eric, if you want to understand Babel, Babylon in Revelation 18, you have to start with Genesis 10 and 11. And what you will see is that throughout all of the Scripture, there is this juxtaposition between Jerusalem, which is the city of God, and Babel, which represents all of man's efforts. And it's not just some sort of ideal thing. They're talking about the literal, physical places of Babylon. This is why there has been a shift in the last 20 years among conservative, traditional dispensationalists in reinterpreting Genesis, I mean Revelation 17 and 18 from Babel, meaning being sort of a representative term for the Western Empire, and the fact that there is uh, tremendous evidence to support the fact uh, from the Scriptures, not historically, not geographically, 
but from the Scriptures that when we come to Revelation 17 and 18, we need to continue to be consistent in applying our interpretation, our literal interpretation. And when it talks about Babylon there, it's talking about Babylon, which incidentally is about 50 miles southwest of Baghdad. And who would have thought 15 years ago that we would be fighting in Iraq and all that's going on there. And and Saddam Hussein rebuilt Babylon. And there, were, there have been people who have been living on location at Babylon since the ancient world. And for years, and I know I was taught this when I was younger by many different men, uh, some of the greatest prophecy scholars around like Dwight Pentecost of Dallas Seminary and John Walvoord and many others, that... Uh, Babylon was destroyed and uninhabited. Well, Charlie Dyer, who was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary, made a special study. I think he wrote his master's thesis on Babylon, went over there many times, got pictures, and documented the fact that, that people have lived there on that site. There have been Bedouin groups living there, and there has been consistent habitation on the site of ancient Babylon all along. And I think that we're going to have a resurrection of a literal Babylon in the Millennial Kingdom as an economic hub based on all of this. And and this brings to conclusion and resolution and revelation that which begins here in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. So we have the origination of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, which is Akkadia, uh, are the, the Akkadians, uh, Kalnes, Shinar, the land of Shinar where Babylon is, Asher, the Assyrians, uh, Nineveh, the place Jonah fled from, or fled from because he didn't want to take the gospel to Nineveh. Uh, cities like Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, Rezin. Uh, Tarshish is also mentioned. That's Spain. That's where Jonah was going when he's trying to get away from Nineveh. So to understand these places, they start here in the Table of Nations. And this helps give us that, that biblical framework for understanding these things. Also, I've mentioned Tubal and Meshech. And that plays an important role in understanding and interpreting Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the Gog and Magog uh, invasion of Israel. So all this is, comes out of a study of the Table of Nations. This isn't some of the most exciting stuff for most people. It's not going to get down there and deal with a lot of issues in your spiritual life, but it's going to give you a lot of background for understanding history and what God is doing in history. Furthermore, the eighth observation is that the writer shifts between two terms. He starts off talking about the sons of, and then he'll shift and he'll use the phrase, so-and-so gave birth to. So he uses the phrase, the sons of, which is the Hebrew bani, and then he will say, well, then, then uh, these are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then he says, the sons of Japheth were, and that's... Um, the, using the term B'nai, and then he'll go down and he'll say, from these, these gave birth to, uh, and, and different passages like you skip down and you can look at, at, uh, uh, verse 13, Mitzrayim, begot, Ludim, Anamim, Lehavim, Naphtali. So you have this second phraseology, and it indicates something. The writer emphasizes what became of the sons. There are certain sons that are given birth to, and then the writer wants to emphasize what became of those sons, what they produced, the people that came forth from them in relation to Israel. So you have a double 
uh, thrust there in the Hebrew. And it ties together because those who are given birth to Yalad, Yalad is a form of the word Toledot. You know that LD in Toledot? That's out of the LD in Yalad. That's a different form of the word. So all of this ties together in a way that gives us confidence that this is not just something that somebody threw together. It's a well-thought-out piece of literature. It hangs together internally. You don't necessarily see some of these things in the English, but they're there in the Hebrew. And they give us a confidence that this is a historically valid document. It's accurate in everything that it says. You know, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture originates from with God. And so... The Scripture teaches that it's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, even the genealogies, because this gives us a foundation for understanding God's plan for history. When we get into Genesis 10.1, we have the introduction to the section. Now, these are the records, the Toledot. This is literally, this is what happened to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now, obviously, they had daughters as well. But the focus is on that line of descent through the sons. And we start off by looking at the first group, the sons of Japheth. They're, they're then given in reverse order. The sons of Japheth. And what we have is there are seven sons of Japheth given. And only two of these sons are then singled out for further development. Gomer and Javan. These are the two that are singled out and you have their sons given in verses 3 and verses 4. And then there is a concluding sentence in verse 5. That's where we're headed. That's, that's the conclusion. That's the emphasis. In verse 5 we read from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, that's an important term. You'll just look at that, the coastlands. Well, these are the people who were along the coast. Now, this is a word that is used to describe mostly the Greek people, but it's defined here. These are the coastland people. Who are the coastland people? The coastland people are the descendants of these seven sons of Japheth. Now, that is going to become crucial in interpreting prophecies that come about, especially in Ezekiel uh, later on. So let's look at some of these descendants. Let's see what uh, we can learn just by examining their names. Well, the first is to focus on Japheth. He, this word is also brought over into the Greek in the word Iapetas. Iapetas was the, considered to be the father, and he's part God. He's the, he's the father of the Greeks. Now, here's an interesting aside I want you to remember. I'm going to shift over here to the overhead. I want you to remember this. You have two things that, that, that go on during this early period of time. First of all, you have this, this legend over here in Genesis 6. Not legend, but I'm using that term in relation to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You have the stories that filtered down of the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God. These were the demons that intermarried with the daughters of men. And they produced a race that were known as the Nephilim, the monsters, 
that there were giants on the earth in those days, uh, the King James says. These were, this was a, a supernatural race. So that's one stream of thought that gets filtered. Remember, as time goes by, these things enter into legend and they get all warped and distorted. But there's a, a core truth, a, a kernel of historical reality there that goes back to the fact that you had these demons that were thought of as gods that came to the earth and took uh, human wives. Then, on the other hand, you have the, I'll write it in English, the B'nai Noah, the sons of Noah. And these sons of Noah and their and their sons, and even their grandsons, and I'll bring. We'll have a chart next time when we get to their ages. Live for Noah lives for 500 years after the flood, and if we skip down, just turn the page with me and skip down to chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 10. This is a genealogy of Shem. Shem's 100 years old. And he begots our Faxad two years after the flood. And he begot our fact said, Shem lives another 500 years. No, Noah didn't live another 500 years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after the flood before he dies. So he's pretty old by the time he's 700 years old by the time he dies. He begot, he gives birth to our fact Our fact lives 35 years, begets Selah. And then our fact lives 403 years. So he lives 433 years. So uh, he dies, he's going to die before Shem dies. Fact is, all these people are going to die before Shem dies. Most of them are going to live longer than their great-grandsons, at least the first three or four generations off the ark. That means those first three generations or so off the ark are going to also appear to be gods to their great-great-grandchildren. These were civilization builders. When we look down here and we look at, at Mitzrayim, who is the descendant of, of uh, Ham, his son, Mitzrayim is the founder of Egyptian civilization. He's the founder of the first dynasty of Egypt. He and his sons built the pyramids. These guys were considered gods by their descendants because of what they were able to accomplish. They brought with them, or at least Shem, Ham, and Japheth brought with them, the technology of the antediluvian world. And so in those early generations, while they were still alive, while Ham was still alive, he and Mitzrayim and the others passed on this technology, and they accomplished incredible things. Five generations, ten generations later, that technology was lost. They couldn't go back and duplicate it. So those descendants thought of Noah and that generation as gods. As a matter of fact, what you have is an attempt to identify Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth with the gods. And this is a phrase, I tell you many times, you're just, if you don't get anything else out of this, you're going to learn history and you're going to get a vocabulary shift. There was a group of men who wrote for years, several centuries, called Euhemerists. E-U-H-E-M-E-R-I-S-T-S. Euhemerists. And these Euhemerists were men who took 
Genesis 10 and 11 is literally true, that these men existed. And they also assumed that the ancient descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth deified the early, the early generations off of the ark. And so they tried to identify the human, uh, the, 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 the humans listed in the, in the table of nations with the gods and goddesses of the ancient pantheons. And see, you get hints of this. And I think some of it, I think, was speculative. We lost a lot of it. And once you get into modern science, which just sort of turned up their nose at this whole approach because they rejected the literal uh, interpretation of Genesis 10 and 11. They rejected Genesis 10 and 11 as having any historical value. Now, that was their whole assumption in the Enlightenment, was that nobody earlier than us really knew anything. Everything written before the 15th century, 16th century was just was just a legend. You can't rely on any of it. None of it has, has any historical value. Well, if you go back to, to Greek legend, the father of the, the Greeks was Iapetos, and he's considered sort of half God, half man. See how they're blending the pre-flood view of the demons coming down with these post-flood giants, and I mean that in an intellectual, social way, because of the great things they did. There's also an etymological connection with Jupiter. Now, we have to remember as I go through this, that there are certain rules of how words go from one language to another language. Often in one language it will be written with a J. When it goes over into another language, it's written with a Y or the other way around. This is how we come up with the problem with Yahweh, written with a Yod in Hebrew. But in German, you don't have a Y, you have a J. That's how you pronounce a J, is, is, is like we pronounce our letter Y. So they write it with a J. And then so in German scholarship, you have, instead of Y-H, uh, W-H, you'd have J-H, and then the W would change to a V, so it becomes J-H-V-H. They would still pronounce that Yahweh, and then it came into English, and we pronounce it Jave with a G, and then it became Jehovah. With, uh, so this is how things shift around. You have the shift from J to Y and Y to J as well as V to W, W to V. Also K to C and S. It's an S, a soft sibling in one language. For example, in Greek, you don't have an, um, you, you have a K and you have an S, but you don't have the letter, what looks like our letter C. But if you want to write an S in Russian in the Cyrillic alphabet, you write an S. That's what it looks like. That's why when you look at the abbreviation for the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, it looked like this. Because Soviet Socialist is spelled with a S, which looks like our C, and their P is our, what looks like a P to us, is an R. So you have to understand how these things go back and forth between languages. So when you have... G- and, and the other thing was, in the early stages, they didn't have vowels. They just wrote consonants. So if you wrote Japheth, J-P-T, and then you change that to Y-P-T or I-P-T. For example, in the New Testament in Greek, you have Jesus, Yoan for John, Jesus for Jesus. 
and that Y becomes a, a, a J. So Yapatas, Jupiter, and Japheth are all etymologically related. Then his first son is Gomer. Not Gomer Pyle. I knew some of you were going there. Gomer. See, Gomer Pyle just had a good biblical name. Gomer's mentioned in Ezekiel 38.6. Hold your place here, and you might stick a pen or a piece of paper in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38. Come back to again and again. There's a listing in Ezekiel 38 that relates to this Gog and Magog invasion of Israel in the tribulation. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Where's that? The prince of Rosh. Some have identified Rosh with Russia. Meshach. Some have said, well, that's the etymological root for Moscow. I don't think so. Meshach and Tubal. And prophesy against him. And then... In verse 4, God says, I will turn you around, I will put hooks in your jaws, lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. We'll see connections there in a minute with the table of nations. Are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all of its troops. Well, who's Gomer? And the house of Togarma from the far north and all of its troops. Who are these people? Well, you've got to go back to Genesis 10 to find out. Gomer, if you take out the vowels, is G-M-R. If the G hardens to a C or a K, you have the word C-M-R. This is related to the Chimerians, uh, who were re- people who were related to the Scythians. The Chimerians inhabited the central part of Turkey in the period right after the flood. Eventually, those people moved north and west into Europe. The Assyrians listed them as the Gemaria, and in Greek they were called the Kimeroi, Kimerioi. Notice how that G becomes a C and it becomes a K. Also, GMR, you also, sometimes when a word goes from one language to another language, the, the consonants will shift. Think about that, G-M-R. Can you think of a country that instead of having as its root consonants G-M-R, it has its root consonants as G-R-M? What? Germany. The, the descendants of Gomer through Ashkenaz, end up, in fact, there's a Lake Ashkenaz up in northern Germany, and, uh, and so the Germanic tribes ultimately derive from the descendants of Gomer, as do, of course, many, many others because he's so, so far back. But this is who uh, Gomer is the father of. They, the descendants of Gomer move into the area of Cappadocia in central Turkey. Other names that are etymologically related to Gomer are Umber in Italy. See, that G often softens to just a very soft guttural. Instead of Gomer, it would be Omer. Or Umber, and the M goes to sort of an MB, Umber. And that also shows up in the English Northumberland. It's related to Gomer. The Gauls, the Celts, and uh, Galicia, uh, and Galatia are all descendants of Gomer. 
Ireland was also known as Ivernia or Hibernia, which again is etymologically related to Gomer, to the, to the word Gomer. All of these are descendants of Gomer. So you're going to end up with the Irish, the Scots, the Germans, Brits, some tribal groups in northern Italy, uh, the, the uh, Gauls in, uh, in France, and also the Galatians who show up in the epistle to the Galatians are all descendants from Gomer. Third man is Magog, mentioned in Ezekiel 38.2, the, the land of Gog. Actually, that's a typo, the land of Gog, a region between Armenia and Cappadocia in the central or eastern part of central Turkey. These are the ancestors of the ancient Scythians. Now, think about the term Scythian. What are your first, four, first three consonants? S, C, or K, T, or Scott. See, here's another descendant. You have other records that talk about the ancient forebears of the Brits who came from uh, Crete, and that before that they came from the southern part of Turkey. So the Scythians are the progenitors of the Scots. So they come down through Magog. Now, I'm thinking, after I've traced all this out recently, I'm starting to rethink what's going on in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You got Gog and Magog, and you got between those two terms, you really have a summary of Western Europe in those two terms based on the table of nations. So I'm going to have to go back and do a lot more study on this uh, before we come to any definite conclusions. So Magog is the progenitor of the Scythians as well as the Goths. The Goths are a little further north. They end up in the area around uh, Hungary and Slovenia and Czech, uh, the Czech, modern Czech Republic, and those areas. Goths were also said to be a descendant of Magog according to Ninius. Now, Ninius is an interesting figure. He's an 8th century monk in Britain. And just before this time, you have a situation where you have had Celtic Christianity come from Ireland to Scotland and down from the north in, in Britain, and then and, and that all went back to, to Patrick. Then you have Roman Catholic uh, Christianity coming up from the south through Augustine of uh, of uh, uh, Brit- British fame, not the Augustine of Hippo down in North Africa, a different Augustine. And it, it, they have this conflict, and so the, one of the uh, bishops in that area had a, had a monastery of the Celtic Christians wiped out and killed everybody, massacred everybody, and burned all their documents. And they had historical records that went back uh, many, many centuries, uh, hundreds of years before Christ. And Ninius... Um, writes about them, and he says that the, the Goths were descendants of Armenon, the son of Elanus, who is a descendant of Javan, who is another uh, descendant of, of uh, Japheth. So it's interesting, what Ninius did was in this ancient document on the history of Britain, is he has genealogies for the Irish Celts and for the, the Britons and for the Welsh, and they all go back to either Noah or a descendant of Noah. And where there aren't gaps, they fit perfectly with the biblical evidence. So there's a lot of this extra biblical data, and I'll get into a little more of that uh, next time. Uh, Media, the fourth son, is the progenitor of the Medes, 
who live in the area of east of Assyria, southwest of the Caspian Sea, in the area of modern Uzbekistan. And these were the Medes who joined up with the Persians during the time of Daniel. Then you have the fifth son, or the fourth son, actually, Javan. Also, Ionia. See that J turns to a, an I and the V to sort of an O or W and it becomes Ionia. He is a, uh, this is one of the progenitors of the Greeks in western Turkey, an area that is eventually made up of, of Greeks, area of Troy, Ephesus, all that area. Early records during the reign of Sargon II in the 8th century B.C. refer to that area of western Turkey as Jawan or Jaman. So these ancient names were attached to the areas where they uh, established their their uh, area of domain. Then the fifth son... Remember, I had Japheth was number one here on the slide. So the fifth son is Tubal. And he is described as the father of a people the Assyrians called the Tabali. And they lived in an area called Tabal, which is in modern Georgia. I'm not talking about the state here down south of Tennessee. I'm talking about the Georgia over in the former Soviet Union. That's FSU former Soviet Union, and the capital of modern Georgia is, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Tbilisi, T-B-L-I-S-I. Notice how that is etymologically related to Tabal and Tubal. And Tabal, that region, is next door to the biblical land Togarma, which is mentioned again in Ezekiel 38. And is a uh, Togarma is also mentioned here, in uh, verse 3 of Genesis 10:3 is a son of Gomer. So the Assyrian name for Togarma was Te- Tegarama, and Togarma is a son of uh, Gomer, and therefore a nephew of Tubal. Then we have Meshach, and this was uh, in the Cappadocians. He was the father of the Cappadocians, again an area in north-central Turkey. And then the last is... The last one mentioned of the seven sons is Tiras, uh, Tiras, and he is uh, the father of a group of of Greeks in the northern part of Greece. They are known as the Thracians. So, from the seven sons of Japheth, we're beginning to get an overview of how uh, Western Europe becomes settled, and also how these names show up later on in history. We'll come back next time, tie a few things together, and then get into the sons of Ham and the background to the Tower of Babel with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to look at these details, and while they're not always the most stimulating or most uh, seem to be uh, uh, applicable right now, they confirm for us the historicity of your word, the accuracy of your word, and the fact that you control history. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, give us a a desire to come to a greater understanding of Scripture, knowing that it does address all issues in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.